Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like to begin reading at verse 14. Hebrews 12, reading at verse 14 to the end of the chapter and giving our attention this morning to verses 22 through 24, the middle part there, which talks about the saints having come to Mount Zion. Now the letter of Hebrews is really a sermon, and this pastor preaches to his dear friends in the Lord, urging them not to go backwards, not to give up, but to persevere. They face persecution. They face harassment by friends and loved ones probably who were Jews who did not embrace Jesus Christ. They followed Judaism, the Old Testament without Christ, which is really not the Old Testament at all. And there was pressure upon these saints And he's urging them not to give up. He wants to remind them of their privileges. Hebrews 12, verse 14, God's word. I'll alert you when we come to our sermon text. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Here's our text. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We read on. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's bow before God and ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, we come to your word asking once again that you would speak to us, that you, our holy God, would visit us in grace, 
We thank you, Lord, that we may assemble here with our children. We pray that your word would affect them too. And we know that your spirit can cause them to know and understand and believe more than we expect. We pray, Lord, you bless Jeremy and Terry as they week by week take up your word in their hearts too to instruct their children. Give them much grace in that task that they may declare to Annika too her covenant inheritance. Bless each one here today, Lord, wherever we stand in relation to you. May this word be a word that gives life, that grows life, and a word that brings us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ and boys and girls, parents sometimes, well, I guess always, usually, teach their children their name, and they teach their children at some point their address, lest if they get lost, right, they might know what home is, might tell someone where home is. Well, that's kind of what our passage is about this morning. We rejoice today in the gift of Annika brought into this world. We rejoice with Jeremy and Terry and the family. We marvel at a God so gracious that he forms little lives and brings them forth into his people's homes and into his church. But all of the the joy of bringing children into the world, well, it also comes with some fears, doesn't it? Because we know that this world is not a friend to grace, and we know that our culture appears increasingly godless, and we grieve laws that are enacted that legislate wickedness, and, and we grieve of a population that reelects legislators that legislate wickedness. And, and we look around at technology and marvel at, at the conveniences and, and the way it helps to spread the gospel, but we know that with it comes the multiplication of sin, and we, we rejoice in medical science and Diseases that are cured, but we also know that we're presented with, with, with ethical quandaries now in this area of medical science. And so there's lots of things that, that might cause us to fear, but one wrong response to our culture is to stop having children, right? Fear is not a good motive for trying to stop conception and childbearing. Whether it's fear of finances, fear of not being able to provide food or a Christian education, or whether it's fear about the godlessness of our culture, or whether it's fear about what our neighbors will say about us ruining the planet, fear is not a good reason for not having children. The wonderful obligation God has given to be fruitful and multiply, to receive children as a gift from God's hand if he chooses to give them, is not to be dismissed out of fear. But the other wrong reaction to our godless culture is to bear children, but then to leave them unprepared to navigate this culture. To leave them to wander and be confused by not answering their most basic questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? So God, the Holy Spirit, by the writer of Hebrews here, would write the address upon our hearts and minds tonight, that we would know who we are, where we are, and where we are going. Let's look this morning at Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, under three points. First of all, God's city, and secondly, Jesus' blood, and thirdly, your place. God's city, Jesus' blood, your place, or if you like, God's habitation, 
Christ's mediation and your participation. Well, Annika was marked for pilgrimage this morning. That's what baptism is. Marks you for pilgrimage, for a destination. And it's our calling as Christian parents to impress upon our children the reality of the destination, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. And God does for for parents what, what parents are to do for their children. He says in the word here, take a look. Look at this. It's like getting ready to take a, a, a really nice vacation. Maybe you get, a, you get a pamphlet. You go on the website. You look at the pictures and you dream. You, you read the reviews. You read the descriptions. What's the destiny? Sometimes maybe you're disappointed. False advertising of the tourist company. Bad reviewers. But there's no doubt that what is said here is true. It's God's word. City of the living God. It's a glorious place, and it's a real place. It's as real as Mount Sinai. Now, the the writer here has contrasted, right, two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, not the earthly one, Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, and they're they're contrasted here. And Mount Sinai was a real event. It It was terrifyingly real. The living God descended on the mountain, and so there was... There were things to see, right? There was, there was smoke, and there were dark clouds, and there was lightning, and there were things to hear. There, were, there was thunder, and there was this trumpet blast, and there was the voice of God, and there were things to smell, the smoke perhaps, and there, there were things to, to feel. The mountain was quaking. It was an awesome sight. I was showing my family last night a a little news clip of this new canyon that opened up in Turkey due to the earthquake. Maybe you saw that. It's fascinating. There were people in in the village there who during the night believed that something cataclysmic was happening. And, And at first light, they went out and they discovered that what had been a field had now opened up into a a giant canyon. Some places a football field in length across and Deep enough, they said, to put in a 13-story building. God had done something tremendous. One boy they interviewed said, I used to ride my motorbike. It was a field. Now look at this. And, And then a young man they interviewed. He said, we came out in the morning, and we found this, and we were terrified, and we began to cry. (laughs) We began to cry. We thought we'd seen something out of this world. Well, indeed they had. The little finger of God touched the earth, right? But what was it to see the living God, to feel the living God descend upon Mount Sinai? That was the most awesome Old Testament experience of worship there ever was. And that experience of worship actually shaped the rest of Old Testament worship because they cry out to Moses, God speaks to you, you speak to us, but we cannot hear God's voice or we'll die. Never again. And what does God give to his people? He gives them, he gives them a priesthood. Now Aaron and his sons will be high priests and will mediate between them and God. And then God takes his presence, as it were, and he puts it behind a thick curtain in the most holy place. But only once a year, one single man for one single moment would dare to enter behind that curtain carrying blood. God's veiled presence. And now the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to that mountain. Oh no. 
verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth that God is making. It's the place that Old Testament saints hungered for. Hebrews 11, Abraham looked for that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And the wonder of the city, what's the one attraction? The main attraction is God himself, right? It's the radiance of his presence. It is his overwhelming love. It is the the splendor of his holiness. God fills the city with his glory. But who is there? Well, the writer says there's angels there, an innumerable company of angels. And he, he, he speaks of these angels, these mighty ones who do the Lord's bidding. These whom he says earlier in Hebrews are, are ministering spirits sent to minister to, to us. He speaks of them as the general assembly, or it could be translated the festal gathering, giving the idea perhaps that these, these angels are involved in a tremendous celebration. There's a glorious joy among the angels as they sing praise to the Lamb who was slain. And we get a taste of that worship service in heaven as we worship here on earth, don't we? Because the Spirit comes to us by God's Word. But we haven't yet enjoyed what some enjoy right now, the spirits of just men made perfect. There are justified souls in heaven stand righteous before God, a countless multitude who see the Savior's face. And some of those in heaven involved in that worship service up there this morning, we know by name and by relationship. We fellowship with them. Some of them sat in these chairs. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it? That the loss of a loved one, a brother or sister in the Lord, that we, we have this poignant realization that That someone that was here, a real person, is now there, a real place. It's a mercy of God to us, isn't it? Not only to comfort our hearts about the loss of that one, but by by reminding us of that to to draw our hearts upward. I often find it a poignant experience. Our first morning worship service after a brother or sister has been called home or after a Friday or Saturday funeral, we begin to sing of the saints in heaven and it's... What an awesome thought. While we fumble through worship here below, that brother or sister is now soaring through worship above. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says, it's not simply future for you, but you have come to Mount Zion. Our names registered there, our faith in Jesus Christ connecting us there. We have actually come already now to the destination. It's not all future. And it's a wonderful thing to think that as we join in worship on Lord's Days here, that we assemble at this launch pad and by the Holy Spirit through faith are lifted to join our voices with the celebration above. The goal of our pilgrimage is also the present reality. You have come. And the question then this morning is, do we see it? And is it real to us? Is it real? Mount Sinai was so tremendously tangible and sensual, right? You could see, you could hear, you could feel, you could smell. 
And we have a culture that tells us every day that if you can't see it, can't touch it, it's not real. It's not real. We live in a tremendously materialistic culture. But do you see it? We're to cultivate a sense of sharing in this reality that the Mount Zion that is invisible to us this morning is more real than Mount Sinai, which will be shaken and fall away. We are to teach our children to believe in the invisible, to know that it's a real place. Well, how do we do that? We'll look at that more in a moment, but let's look secondly about how we get there. How do we get there? You can teach a child their address, of course, but then what? I mean, you would wonder, who, who's going to bring them home? Teach our children not to talk to strangers. Who's someone safe? Well, same question with Mount Zion. Who's going to bring you there? And the answer is Christ by his blood. Now, just as the writer contrasted two mountains, now he contrasts two kinds of blood in verse 24. The blood of Abel and the blood of Jesus. Boys and girls, do you remember the blood of Abel? Some of us don't like blood. It makes us queasy, right? And indeed, the story of Abel would make you queasy because Cain and Abel are two sons of, of, of Adam and Eve. And remember, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's sacrifice. And Cain was angry with God, so he took it out on his brother, brought him out in a field, and he killed him. In such a way that his blood poured into the ground. That's what's being spoken of here. This blood, the blood of Abel. In verse 24, it says, We come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Well, what did the blood of Abel speak? The blood of Abel cried out for justice. Where is your brother Abel? God asked Cain. And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Can't hide from God. The all-seeing eyes of God. Abel's blood was that damning evidence that Cain was a murderer. Cried out in accusation, demanding satisfaction And vengeance. God's not deaf to the cry of that blood. God will take action. God, his justice can't be twisted or denied. Every sin will receive its due. The blood cries out. It cries out against the conscience of the evildoer so he can have no rest. If all we had this morning was the blood of Abel, we'd have nothing to tell our children, and we'd have no baptism, that's for sure. There'd be no hope. We felt it ourselves at times. What? How can I worship God knowing what I did, what I said, what I thought? We are desperately in need of better blood. And the good news of our text is God has provided the better blood. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Now, Jesus was also murdered, wasn't he, by his brothers. 
But he was not a helpless victim like Abel. He was the willing victim who came to give his life on the cross for the sins of his people and who stuck to the cross until he had paid it all. He came to be the mediator of the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Moses was a mediator, but he was an insufficient mediator, and all the blood of goats and bulls in the Old Testament could not remove sin. But God's given to us a greater mediator, the great go-between who stands between God and us, who brings God and us together by the blood of the covenant, who offers up this morning our prayers to God and pours out upon us God's blessing and who is committed to bring us together eternally. That we may behold the face of God in Jesus Christ and rejoice and God look upon us and Jesus Christ will bless us forever. This is the, the blood of the covenant. It's called here the blood, notice, the blood of sprinkling. Because at Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, the people stood there and blood was sprinkled on them. By the way, on the occasion of baptism, we have to admit that sprinkling is a fine mode of baptism, not the only mode. But it would be strange if baptism points to the blood of Christ applied to us, if the manner of applying that blood throughout all the Old Testament sprinkling was somehow an impermissible mode of baptism. No, it's a beautiful thing to see our children sprinkled now, not with blood, because the final blood has been shed, no more shedding of blood, but sprinkled by water. As a sign that Christ's blood has cleansed us. As a promise to our children that God, your covenant God, is pleased to wash you. And this blood of Jesus, we're told, speaks better things than that of Abel. What does it speak? Well, it pleads with God, doesn't it? Our whole pardon. Christ has delivered his sacrifice to heaven. And in heaven right now is our Lord Jesus Christ in the very body that bore our sin and guilt. And that body pleads for us. cries out that our sins are paid for, cries out that justice has been satisfied for every one of our sins. And that blood speaks to our consciences. It clears us that we approach God boldly with expectation that our guilt is removed. So we come, as Hebrews chapter 10 says, right? We, we come now through this new and living way, through this great high priest, Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What an entry. You have come to Mount Zion where the ultimate mediator is found. And that blood of Christ speaks about that city to which God is bringing us. So we must tell our children, right? Above all, we must tell our children that their baptism points to Jesus. To the sprinkling of blood that speaks better things than the blood demanding justice. Points to the blood that guarantees a full pardon. Parents, never underestimate your children's need to hear the gospel. We parents sometimes fall into the proclamation of rules and the administration of judgments. But let us never forget 
that no one ever repents of their sin unless they know that there's a path of forgiveness. No one ever repents of their sin unless they know there are arms open to receive them, that there is grace. It's not that you repent of sin and later learn that there's a gospel. No one repents of sin unless they see the gospel. And as our children learn to grieve as we grieve over our sin, and discover what we've discovered in ourselves, that there is in ourselves nothing trustworthy, we need to tell them the good news. That they, by being good and obeying rules, cannot make themselves acceptable to God. But what they cannot do, Jesus has done. And their baptism is the proclamation. Not, first of all, a summons to live a certain way. That's second. It's, first of all, the proclamation that God has promised to wash away all their sins by the blood of Jesus and to present them righteous before his eyes. Jeremy and Terry get to tell Annika the good news. But finally, this morning, let's consider our place, our participation in this city. Our third point. The writer says of this great city that it's the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now Moses was commanded in Numbers to enroll by name all the firstborn males of the people of Israel. There were at different times enrollments upon earth. But when the disciples come back to Jesus amazed that they could cast out demons, he says, no, no, no. Don't rejoice in that, first of all, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And the Apostle Paul could, could write in Philippians to, to his friends in the Lord and speak of them as whose names are written in the book of life. And unlike the registries of heaven, the registry of, or of earth, the registry of heaven is eternal, right? There's, the names written in heaven are written there permanently. They're inscribed for eternity. What a... High honor to think that our names are written there with the names of the likes of Moses, King David, and all the greats, Abraham of the Old Testament. But how can we know? How can we know our name is written in heaven? We know it by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no future inheritance, but united to Christ by faith, it's ours, guaranteed. But here's the thing, and this is the warning that the writer of Hebrews is, is impressing upon these, these Jewish Christians. He's saying, look, if you don't believe on Jesus Christ, if you turn away from this mediator Jesus to go back to Moses, then you will lose the inheritance. Then you have no inheritance, and you never really had any inheritance. And you see, he, he holds up to us here Esau in verse 16, doesn't he? Esau, he says, well, he warns them. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness 
springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now Esau looks upon Mount Zion, and then he looks upon his hungry stomach, and he says, you know, I care more about my stomach than I do about my inheritance. And he forfeits, he sells away his inheritance for one morsel of food. And you see, the writer of Hebrews, as soon as he he concludes this glorious passage about Mount Zion, verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did escape, did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And so he's saying, look it, it's, you've come to Mount Zion now, the mediator has come. And if they did not survive rejecting God under old covenant terms, how will you survive if you reject now the revelation from Mount Zion? With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. The stakes are not lessened now with Christ coming, but they're all the higher. Greater new covenant privileges means greater responsibility. And so he's urging them to respond in faith and obedience to the precious promises. Esau threw it all away. And there are still those who are baptized but who grow up to devalue their baptism and do not take seriously the promises God made. See that you do not refuse the voice of God. See that you do not refuse the words spoken to you in your baptism. The way, the sure way, and the only way to the inheritance is to be satisfied with nothing less than trusting the blood of Jesus Christ. Not trusting my good my New Year's resolutions or, or trusting some good character or trusting what I'm going to do tomorrow, but trusting the blood of Jesus. That's the great joy. This is the joy of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to redeem us. The joy of heaven is not look at all the good things we've done. We were great, weren't we, God? The joy of heaven is the joy of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must teach the children of the church to glory in the gospel. In the gospel. But there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. We must teach our children to prize and to see that. As we call them to repentance and say that was wrong, then we lead them to the gospel. Praise be to God who forgives you, my child, who washes you. And that's what enables you to repent freely because you know there's a way home. And then we call our children to set their hope upon Mount Zion, upon that mediator above, so that they will keep pressing on towards the goal. How do we do that? How do we teach our children to prize the invisible over the visible world? That would be a good Bible study discussion, wouldn't it? Well, the writer of Hebrews has told us one very important thing already back in chapter 10 when he said that we ought to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching.
not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We haven't yet come to the fullness of that city above and that new creation ahead of us. But what better way to seek that future inheritance than to gather here below and to have the foretaste of it and to hear the saints below sing praise to the Lamb and to hear the voice from heaven declared to us through the Scriptures and to begin to enjoy the presence of God by His Spirit. We as parents may not treat lightly the worship of the Lord on Lord's days. And if not for our own souls and for the souls of our children, we bring them to the foot of Mount Zion when we come here. Not because of this building. We could be out in a field or in a cave. But we bring them to the foot of Mount Zion when we assemble for corporate worship with the official means of grace, word and sacraments, to call upon the name of the living Lord Jesus together. It's an awesome thing. Remember the early church gathered in prayer after the apostles were released from prison. They began to pray. And God shook the earth. And we can train ourselves by God's grace and train our children to see that in worship, to prize worship. I'm sure every Christian minister must feel every Lord's Day disappointed in various ways that I I wish I would have done a better job to try to lead God's people into God's presence. I wish my tone or my words or whatever it might be would would have been more fitting, would have been more helpful. But you know, every Christian parent ought to say that as well every week. We ought to say, Lord, I want next week to do a better job leading my children, preparing them to meet their God. Shame on me when I speak more excitedly, with more preparation for the upcoming basketball game than for readying their heart for worship. When my daughter knows I care very much about her hair, but she knows nothing that I care about the awesomeness of God. We can work at being thoughtful and humble and joyful and worship and explaining to our children what is transpiring here in the invisible realm. And in seeking to help them prepare their hearts to meet with God through the great mediator, Jesus Christ. And out of that worship, then we go from the foot of Mount Zion into the world doing what the writer of Hebrews says, to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This morning, Annika was marked for pilgrimage. The Lord has stamped the destination upon her. It's the duty of her parents, the duty of all Christian parents. It's actually our duty together as the people of God. To proclaim to the next generation that the invisible mountain is the one we seek, the one that's coming. May God be gracious to us, and may we be comforted 
to know that it doesn't matter how godless a culture becomes. God has carried his people through all kinds of cultures. What matters is the sure promises of God in Jesus Christ. If the hearts of God's people will, by the mediation of Jesus, commune with their God, then they're already in heaven, and they will see it in fullness soon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you with humble hearts. What an awesome God you are. How little we tremble before you, but you are a consuming fire. And yet, God, you are so gracious, so full of warmth. Your face smiles upon us through Jesus Christ, so we can come boldly and confidently and expectantly. Well, God, we thank you for the joy of Christian worship. And we want, Lord, to arrive safely at our destination. And we pray for your covenant children, that you would bring them there. And we pray, Lord, for any among us, whether older or younger, who have forgotten what you spoke to us in baptism. Would you reawaken the awareness of the wonder, of the glory, of what's in store for those who love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.